Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 54 here. I think you're in for such a treat. We've got a deep thinker, a source of, of wisdom that I think will be extremely applicable for listeners here. Because as I email folks, please holler at me, Peter Awesome at yourjob.com. It's pretty clear that we've got a number of ambitious, motivated, hard-charging, winner, success-driven type folks in the crowd. And it's so fun to get to serve you and hear from you and what you're up to and the cool achievements and such. And so I've got a guest here who works with those sorts of folks all the time at the Wharton Business School, uh, teaching the famous success course there and getting some real perspective on on what success means. His name is Richard Shell, and you're in for a great treat. So you're going to learn One, the importance of changing your metaphor for success. Two, how to find fulfillment in every domain of your life, particularly we'll talk about careers here. And three, how to self-monitor progress to land in that sweet spot where you've got both achievement and fulfillment and not land in a crisis. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep54. Here's a bit about Richard. A G. Richard Shell is the Thomas Garrity Professor of Legal Studies, Business Ethics, and Management at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. There, he created and teaches the famous Success Course. His books include the best-selling Springboard, Launching Your Personal Search for Success, the award-winning Bargaining for Advantage, Negotiation Strategies for Reasonable People, and The Art of Woo, Using Strategic Persuasion to Sell. He is the director of the Wharton Executive Negotiation Workshop and the Wharton Strategic Persuasion Workshop. Thanks to Richard for sharing his wisdom and expertise with us. And thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello. Part of Atlassian's collaborative suite is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com. Here's Richard. Richard, thank you so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. My pleasure, Pete. Thanks for having me. I got a real kick out of your, your bio when it mentioned that you... I've been married for 40 years, and you met your wife at a Grateful Dead concert. Could you paint that scene for us? <laughs> yeah, sure. It was my senior year in college, and I had gone to see Jerry Garcia and the gang at the gym in the middle of our campus, and I didn't have a date. I was there with a couple of my guy friends, and about halfway through the concert, right about at the time that they were playing Casey Jones, I was in about the fifth row, uh, this woman who was uh, over in the aisle 
sort of waved and I noticed her and she pointed to an empty seat next to me and I waved her in and she had been an usher. She, she had a free ticket and that's how we met. She, uh, she thought that I had a date because there was a woman on the other side of me. Oh. And so she felt like it was a safe, not too forward to move. But uh, the rest is history. We've uh, been together on it. Well, we had a, a little hiatus right after college, but then we got back together and we've been together ever since. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Well, and it sounds like that would be a key part of, of your definition of success. Absolutely. I tell my students that, my undergrads especially, that life ultimately is an open book exam that has three questions. And the questions are, who am I? The second question is, what am I going to do? And the third question is, who am I going to do it with? And I was very fortunate to get the third question answered very early on. Oh, beautiful. So well, I'd love to hear a little bit about this course and talking about success. That, that's one of the things you're really famous for was creating and teaching the success course at, at Wharton. Could you tell us a little bit of the backstory for how that get up and going and, and what's the goal? Sure. I have been at Wharton for ever since I was 37 years old. So when I started teaching in 1986, that was basically I was hired on as a legal studies professor. We have uh, law courses and teach business law. And then as the years went on, I became an expert in negotiation and persuasion. But in the back of my mind always was this very formative period of my life in my 20s when I really went to school on all the How to Succeed books and mm -hmm. investigated lots of different success seminars and transcendental meditation and all kinds of different things just as I was on a sort of quest to find out who I was. And I recognized that the college students today are no more certain than I was when I was a college student and that I would have really loved to have had a course when I was in college that sort of laid out the landscape of these different theories of success and basic ideas on how people go about achieving it, whether it's with the power of their minds or their social skills or all the different theories that get put out there. So I thought, what would be the perfect course that I could teach that would help students the most that I could possibly help them and use every teaching trick, tool, device, exercise that I could come up with? And so it was really a challenge to myself to create you know, what I thought would be just the highest value added course that I was capable of teaching. Mm. So, so I put it together and uh, got the Wharton faculty to approve it, which is no small task since it wasn't completely obvious that it was about business uh, as much as it was about sort of human uh, interaction and the, the sort of overall purpose of life. They sort of thought it ought to be in the English department or maybe mm. the psychology department, but they let me do it anyway. And so I began teaching it roughly 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, 19, uh, 2005. And every year I've taught it, I've changed it and iterated it. And the students who've taken it have sort of partnered with me to bring it up to date and to make it relevant for them. And so it's this work in progress constantly. You know, I've had some amazing students. There's a, a best-selling Penn professor now, Angela Duckworth. She just wrote a book right. called Grit. She was in the first class that I taught. She was a PhD student, and she took the success course the first time I offered it. And she knew more about psychology than I'll ever know then. Mm -hmm. So she really was uh, almost a co-teacher in the sense that she could fill in 
a lot of the literature from positive psychology that that I wasn't as familiar with as I was some of the more traditional success books and texts. But, you know, as the years have gone on, students said, why don't we uh, investigate what the sort of classics have to say about success? So we started reading Plato and Aristotle and some of the Stoic philosophers, Marcus Aurelius. And, you know, then they'd say, well, you know, you have, there are too many men, not enough women. So now we read the the autobiography of Sonia Sotomayor and the autobiography of uh, Mary Kay Ash. And um, so it's just a wonderful course. And it's a, it's really a chance for these students for a whole semester to just investigate these two major questions that they'll be asking for the rest of their lives. What do I mean by success? And given what I think I mean, how do I, how will I go about achieving it? And I kind of think it's not so much a course that gives the answers to those questions as much as it teaches them how to think about those questions so that when they hit different parts of their lives, it, you know, there's obviously a big uh, moment when they graduate from college and they have their first job, but they'll hit it again in the middle of their 20s when they are trying to figure out what the next job might be or whether they want to go to grad school. It'll hit again when they start a family and they have to make compromises about where they might have to live or if their partner needs to move or they get downsized or outsourced or something and they have to decide what to do next. And they'll hit it at the end when they're uh, getting ready to retire from their career and they have to decide how to spend their years after their career. So everybody hits these questions. What do I mean by success at the next stage of my life? And what capabilities do I bring? And I think the capabilities increase. So, you know, you've got a certain set when you're 22, but by the time you're 42, you've got a lot more. And uh, if you're thinking about it carefully, you aggregate those capabilities, find more focused ways to get all of them engaged at the same time, and you add more and more value to whatever you're doing when you do that. Oh, well, that's that's exciting to think about that and imagine how that unfolds. So I guess I'd love to know, you deal with many students over at Wharton who are rather motivated and ambitious in the fields of, of business and career and, and kind of getting perhaps the the most prestigious or lucrative or interesting job possible. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about what are some of the, the most illuminating exercises or questions that you tackle that bring about some real insights for folks in terms of how they should be thinking about their careers? Sure. I mean, I think people from the outside of a place like the Wharton School imagine that everybody in the Wharton School knows exactly what they're doing. Okay. (laughs) And I think people inside the Wharton School who are students look at their fellow students and they think that, well, everybody else knows what they're doing. But the truth of the matter is nobody knows what they're doing most of the time. (laughs) And so this course actually gives students permission to express the uncertainties that they actually have about why they chose Wharton in the first place or what they think they want to do. A lot of students come to a high-powered place like Wharton and they haven't really thought about anything except prestige or money and Most high school students don't know really what they want to do. They may have some fantasies and, you know, Wharton appeals to some of those fantasies. But, you know, they get into college, they start 
figuring out that the world's a much bigger and more interesting place than they imagined. And I find a lot of the students doing the kinds of exercises we do get permission to think about alternatives that they had maybe put aside after the freshman year, or maybe they had in eighth grade and then they got swept up in their high school college race and they forgot what they were really interested in. So what I try to do is give people exercises that allow them to access their own intuitions, their own subconscious thoughts, their own emotions about various aspects that go into making a successful life. One of the, in the very first class, we do something called the six lives exercise, which is six different little short paragraphs. They're little stories of six different people. And I ask them to read. It's a back and a front of a single page of paper. I ask them to read these six stories. And each one of them is a little different. One is one person's a teacher. One person's a stonemason. Another is a wealthy investor. Another is a banker. And then I ask them to rank them from most successful as they see it to least successful. So number one down to number six. And the, the only rule I have is you can't have any ties. So they have to actually make decisions about who they think is successful and who they think is less successful. And as you know, each of the stories has a, a lot of pluses and a few minuses. So, you know, the wealthy investor that I profile is really uh, got a lot of money and a lot of sort of opportunity and freedom and autonomy, but can't hold a steady relationship, has tried marriage, has divorced, doesn't have any children. And when you confront that and compare it to one of the other lives of someone who's not actually got much money, but they've been married for 40 years, they're someone who can build homes, they build homes for their own children, they, they have um, a very warm and loving family life, but not much achievement, not much fame. And people start realizing that maybe you know their images of success are more complicated than they realized, and that if they actually got what they thought they wanted, they wouldn't really be very happy about it. So this gives them a chance to think about things like family, like autonomy, as opposed to working for someone else, being creative as opposed to having routine work or or having you know money but not being really uh, able to share it with anybody or mentoring others. All these lives have different things like that. And, uh, and students find out that it's a very interesting choice. They're quite conflicted. We discuss what people chose, why they chose it. As they, even as they articulate their reasons, they come to realize that they haven't thought much about it. And so we take that assessment on the first class and we take it in the last class, 14 weeks later. And it's surprising to see how people have changed their minds as they've thought more deeply. I mean, basically, when you unpack all the exercises we do, you really discover the fundamental truth about success, which is that it's like a box. And when you open the box, there's two other boxes inside. And one box is called achievement and recognition. And the other box is called happiness and fulfillment. <laughs> and so success is always a package if you have achievements with no fulfillment, that's hardly successful. And if you're sort of feeling happy, but you haven't achieved anything at all, then a lot of people might feel that that's not everything it's cracked up to be either. 
And so you end up having to figure out how you want to mix those two things and how, how much of each is going to bring you the energy and the motivation and the lifestyle and the, the creativity that you as an individual value. And so that when you do achieve something, you're kind of happy about what you've achieved. You know, it's surprising, Pete. It's surprising. I teach this material now to many, many, many hundreds, maybe thousands of executives, Mm -hmm. not just students. And when we talk, it's just amazing to me how many executives have achieved a lot. And when they achieve it, they suddenly feel empty. Right. They're not sure what they were trying to get and they get it, but they really don't want it. And they wonder, how could I have wanted this? And that's what happens when you just go down the achievement track without thinking, do I want this for good reasons? So I think that, you know, the different exercises we do, there are all kinds of uh, ones that are done in the class. I even created a few for the the book I wrote about the class, uh, Springboard. And they're all designed to stir the pot, to get you thinking, to unsettle you a little bit, to try to get you out of your normal assumptions about what you think the world's supposed to be about, and then try to kind of craft your own values. It can go either way. So, you know, if different paths for different people. And my purpose in all this, I think, is to just try to help people find theirs as opposed to try to be just one more person directing them or dictating something to them when I think mostly their problem is they've been a little too passive in the face of other people's expectations and they need to get on their own two feet. Oh, that, that is powerful. You talk about it being, you know, unsettling or disruptive. It's just like, you got me right here right now chewing on some things <laughs> in my own life and like, huh, <laughs> why did I embark upon that uh, endeavor and, and, and what was that for? And, and, and so I guess I'd like to think a little bit about that's a, I love that visual image there. You know, success, you open a box and you've got achievement and fulfillment and, I think I know, I understand achievement maybe seems a little bit more black and white to me in terms of, you know, you have performed well, whether it's uh, promotions or performance review type goals kind of, you know, hit uh, benchmarks met. And, but fulfillment is, seems a little softer, a little, a little trickier to pin down in terms of, you know, how would you go about defining fulfillment? Is it, a set of emotions or or what would you say is fulfillment? I'd say one thing about fulfillment that's true, no matter which domain of your life it's in, it almost always comes after sacrifice and effort. Mm. So if you're unwilling to take risks, if you're unwilling, because I mean, what could be riskier than, than having a family (laughs) (laughs) or finding a life partner and committing yourself to them. And so there's this real deep uncertainty that precedes the effort and the, the sort of long-term commitment to an area of activity, whether it's personal or professional. And you have to sort of be willing to go through that unhappiness and frustration and uncertainty, and maybe it won't work. And then after you do that and things work out, then and they always always work out in a way you didn't expect. That's my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, you know, it's, I I kind of laugh at success books that are based on goal setting. Okay, 
because they have this sort of mechanistic feeling to them that there's a kind of magic. You, you know, you visualize a goal, you write it down, you know, you plop, plop, plop away, and then it works out just the way you expect it. And it hardly never works like that for me. I, <laughs> at one point in my, in my uh, late twenties, I made a list of all the things that I could do in my life that I'd be good at. And then another list of all the things I could never do because I was just totally unqualified <laughs> for them. And the, the list of things I could do was be a, a poet, you know, you know, be a, a Shakespeare professor, you know, study history and blah, blah, blah. The number one thing on the list of things I could never possibly do was teach business. Okay. And, and here I am, I'm a senior professor at one of the best business schools in the world. So how did that happen? <laughs> it didn't happen on some goal setting sheet. <laughs> it happened because like everything in life, you set off in a direction and then you make the most of the next opportunity. And then you make the most of the next opportunity. It's like Napoleon. Napoleon had it right. He said, you know, the, the big Military strategist Napoleon had the following guideline for how to fight a war. Engage and then see what happens. Okay. So I think engage is really important. So be proactive, take action, put yourself in motion, you know, move down a path that appears to you to be a feasible path with your skills and your uh, abilities and your interests. But then always keep your eyes open, see what happens. And if things are not working out, the faster you realize that they're not working out and start redirecting yourself, the, the more likely it is you'll end up in a better place instead of just grinding your head against this wall that's 100 feet thick and it's just not made to yield to you. I love teaching. So for me, I put a lot of effort into planning a class and I put a lot, you know, I sometimes think I put more effort into it than the students do, mm -hmm. but I can't let myself get frustrated if I'm doing, if I feel like I'm more invested than they are, because they're invested in what's going on on their own plane for their own purposes. And so I get the fulfillment, not so much from them saying, great job, you know, Professor Shell. I get fulfillment from knowing I did the very best I could to teach what I was trying to teach in the most compelling way that I was capable of. And then at the end of class, I feel fulfillment. I feel satisfaction. I didn't maybe hit everybody or every topic, but I, but I know I did my best with the skills that I have at that time. And I've gotten better because you do something a lot, you get feedback on it, you get better. But even as better as I am, I still, before every single class, think to myself, I want to do this the best way I've ever done it. I want this to be the best class I've ever taught. And I motivate myself to try to do that. And that's where fulfillment comes. You have effort, you have challenge, you have uncertainty, and you go into the unknown and then something comes back. There's an echo. And it feels like you've made a difference in someone's life or you've accomplished what you've tried to do in the best way you could. And there's a lot of parts of my life that are not fulfilling. I'm a chairman of a department. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of university politics and meetings and stuff like that. Definitely not fulfilling, but it's part of my professional role. I, you know, I do it because somebody needs to do it and I try to do it as well as I can. So there are wonderful things that happen that you can't control and your effort 
doesn't have much to do with it. You just have to be there to experience it. But I think the kind of fulfillment that is in the success box is fulfillment that comes as a result of exerting yourself. And I also like that it, it was kind of internal as opposed to external. It's not so much the students saying you're great that that does it so much as you finding the fulfillment within the job itself and, and what it means intrinsically. Yeah. At the end of an activity, I feel even more energy than I did at the beginning. And when I'm making a really good presentation or I'm teaching a class or I'm uh, giving a talk or I'm in the middle of writing something that I think, you know, is a big project that I'm working on and I'm, I've, I feel like I've really nailed it. I don't feel exhausted when it's over. I feel good. I feel, yeah, let's do this again. You know, yes. I mean, I may need to take a break just to give my mind a chance to like back off a little to get the uh, kind of creative juices going so that it's not just too zoned in, but it's still the case that, you know, the, the energy comes, the feeling of energy comes at the end of an exertion, you know, you're doing something that's right. Oh, that's good. So talk about the, the feelings of knowing if you're doing something right or wrong. I'd like to think a little bit about some of the, the warning signs or, or canaries in the coal mine, if you will, when it comes to, you know, I'm just imagining, you know, we got a, a sharp professional, maybe 28, 29 years old. And what are some maybe warning signs for, uh uh-oh, I may need to change things up in my role here because something isn't working? You know, what are some things to keep the the eyes open for as opposed to just like being blindsided by burnout later on? You know, that's a great question. I suspect that they probably, the signs are different, you know, for different people and that for different personality types, it's going to come sooner or later. I mean, there's some interesting research. People who are really amiable and they are easy to get along with and they are always socially adjustable. They can sort of make other people feel really comfortable. Often are the last ones to know when they're doing the wrong thing Hmm. because they're always coming from the outside in. They're always trying to please their social environment. They're always trying to make other people feel comfortable. And so the message that they're exhausted and that they're depleted, they take just to be, I haven't pleased people enough. Mm. When in fact, what's going on is they're pleasing the wrong people or they're pleasing them by doing the wrong thing. And, you know, so they're stuck in kind of a mediocre place of achievement for themselves, but they keep repeating it because that's the best they can do. And they're trying to please other people where people who are more from the inside out, they're sort of more blunt, more direct, more centered, more kind of crusty a little bit. Mm -hmm. They're not as socially smooth. They're the ones who more often get the message sooner because they're much more in touch with their own preferences and their own kind of emotional reactions to things. And when they're not getting the kind of echo that they like from their social environment, uh, that people aren't appreciating them or that they're not getting much more responsibility or something, they're much more likely to go to somebody and complain about it and, and try to try to be proactive about it because that's just who they are. So, I mean, I think the main thing is emotional self-monitoring. You kind of check on a regular basis. And if you're doing things that you should like to do, I mean, everybody has bad emotional reactions to things that they don't like to do. And everybody has to do some of those. So, 
it's not, you can't have like complete smooth sailing through work. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing things you should like to do and you're not liking it, that's, I think, the sign that there's something wrong in the environment. Now, where can that come from? It can come from the fact that, let's say you're a high school teacher and you love teaching and you really do love teaching. And then they change the principal in your school and the principal is Attila the Hunt, mm -hmm. a nightmare for everybody. And suddenly you don't like teaching anymore because Attila the Hunt is always breaking in on your class and criticizing you and bringing parents down on you and passing off blame and doing all the things that bad people do when they're bosses. And so it's no fun anymore. Well, that's a sign. It doesn't mean you should quit teaching. It means you should change schools mm -hmm. <laughs> if possible, you know, take control over the situation and try to remove the source. That's the negative source in the environment to get back to what you like doing. Another thing that can happen to people is they get tempted away from what they like to do because someone offers them more money, All right. more status. So they're really great at running a factory and making sure the widgets are all perfect and they have really good teams and they get a lot of enjoyment out of being, you know, engaged in this kind of logistical puzzle that gets solved every day. And then someone says, wow, you're really running a good factory. Let's put you in charge of the region. Hmm. And once you're in charge of the region, what happens? You're no longer running a factory. You're now running a bunch of people who are running factories and you may be, reasonably good at that, but you're not as good as it you used to be good at running a plant. And so now you're going to be unhappy and you're going to be stressed and you'll make more money and you'll have more status, but that's where people get unhealthy. They start experiencing the dysfunction by having heart attacks or by losing their marriages or by having, uh, you know, life suddenly look kind of colorless instead of vivid because they took the bait and they started doing something that they didn't do well based on their excellence at doing something else. So you have to, you have to be uh, wise about who you are. And sometimes that negative feedback from your experience is telling you change some part of your circumstances, but keep doing what you're doing. Sometimes it's telling you You've promoted yourself out of your sweet spot and you need to find a way to pedal over and get back on track and earn your status and earn the bigger paycheck by doing better what you love to do instead of doing mediocre what you don't. And uh, it takes some courage to do that sometimes, given that American society in particular is very keen on everybody getting promoted and having more status and advancing up the ladder. But I think one of the things that I try to teach my students is to be careful what your metaphors are for success. Because if you think of success as a ladder, then you're tempted to keep climbing it. If you think of success as something else, then you don't get stuck, you know, making bad moves that are consistent with your metaphor, but are inconsistent with your best interests. I mean, there are a lot of metaphors. You could be a you can have a metaphor of success that you want to be a tree for your community and shelter people. You could have a metaphor for success that you want to be stone that falls in a pond and creates positive influences and ripples 
throughout all of eternity of all the different people that you interact with and that and they interact with other people and they interact with other people. And it's like positive stuff happening. And none of that involves climbing anything. No. <laughs> so, so I think if you start getting thoughtful about what your actual metaphor is, sometimes that can anchor you and give you the confidence to do the right stuff. Oh, this is, this is very thought-provoking and, and rich. I just want to chew on it for some time. You tell us, is there anything you'd like to cover off before we kind of shift gears into the rapid-fire, fast-faves questions? I'm a big believer in recognizing the signals that you're getting from yourself and your heart and being there. I think until you're uncertain or a little dissatisfied, it's hard to motivate yourself to change and get to a place where you're going to be more motivated and more satisfied. So I think honoring the uncertainty and the dissatisfaction and, you know, I'm not saying wallow in it, but recognize the value of it and use it as motivation to keep looking, to keep reading, to keep talking to people and networking and exploring, especially for people who are changing jobs and they're kind of thinking about I think I, I need to make a change. There's wonderful piece of research that explains exactly how people get jobs. And it is sort of what you think, but not exactly. So the name of the article is called The Strength of Weak Ties. It's by a sociologist. All right. And the research that he did shows that, generally speaking, your next job opportunity is going to come through a referral or a network ping back through the system. It's gonna be a contact that's gonna come from a person you know, who knows a person, who knows a person, who knows a person. So the, your contact is actually gonna come from someone you don't know, but who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody you know. Mm -hmm. And it's the persistence and the patience to continue to interact with people and tell them about what your goals are and what your dreams are and what your thoughts are about what you'd like to do and what you're capable of doing. And that word spreads. And then in a very unexpected way, more often than any other way, a little echo comes back and someone presents you with an opportunity. So I think that's why it's so hard sometimes because you don't get the direct feedback. Your friends and family didn't come up with a job for you. But that's not the layer that does it. It's two layers after that. And so that's why it's so important to stay in motion and to stay active and involved in your search for the next step. So I think that would be the last thing I'd say is honor the uncertainty. Keep going. Oh, that's good. Well, thank you. Could you now share with us a, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, my favorite quote of all time in the success literature is from Socrates, he said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm. And Socrates was a great early philosopher. He sort of invented Western philosophy. And I take that as a, a mantra. It is what I try to instill in my students is the willingness to examine your life and to keep examining it, to be aware, self-aware, curious, growth-oriented, look for opportunities for development, and try to stay off of automatic pilot. So you're really still driving your own car and that car is uh, what you're going to do tomorrow. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit of yours that has really boosted your personal effectiveness? I guess I'll share two things. One is I practiced Buddhism mm -hmm. when I was younger. I meditated in some 
meditation centers and monasteries in, in uh, Asia, overseas, in uh, Sri Lanka and South Korea. So I learned meditation, and I don't meditate every day like you do in a monastery. But what I do do, one of, uh, I met a French woman who was a nun at this Buddhist monastery in South Korea, and she taught me a little sort of a, a mantra of the sword. It's not a mystical or anything, but it's just something to say every day that brings you to a point of motivation and purpose. And so every day at some point, I may be, whether I may be in the shower or I may be at a stoplight or I may be sitting in my office or, or meditating, I run through my own personal set of aspirations for the day that are not goals like I want to finish this or start that. They're goals like I want to practice compassion. I want to practice generosity. I want to be aware of being patient, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important to me. And I think that helps. It de-hooks you, it unhooks you from the specific goal to the process you need to use to achieve a goal correctly. And then the goal comes with fulfillment instead of this sense of, why did I do that? Yeah. And then the other thing I do is, I already mentioned it, before I have anything important that I'm going to do, like teacher class or go to a meeting or go to a meeting that's I know the purpose of it, I know it's consequential, or give a talk, I kind of rehearse in my mind the excellence that I want to achieve in that moment and just... I want to bring all of my experience to whatever the moment is that I'm about to engage in and open my mind and make it a fresh addition of me engaging with that and make it the best thing that's ever happened so far. Mm -hmm. So it sort of renews my motivation to make the next moment new instead of repeat what worked yesterday. <laughs> now, maybe I do repeat what worked yesterday. You know, it's a, Everything of that sort is kind of improvisational, but it's a it's an encouragement for me to improvise in a fresh way that will bring a kind of aliveness to the interactions that I have. All right. And how about a favorite sort of resonance nugget, something that you share that really gets people kind of taking notes, nodding their heads, uh, maybe highlighting it in the Kindle version of Springboard? What's a, a little gem that, that seems to really resonate with folks? Ah, there's so many of those. <laughs> Everything you need to be happy is simple. Oh, lovely. People get really wrapped up in the pursuit of happiness, and they think that it's going to come from getting the next job or getting the next object or going on the next vacation or getting married or whatever it is that they think is going to make them happy. And the truth of the matter is that happiness always comes in simple packages, delivered often unexpectedly from moments where you are uh, aware of the moment. So another quote related to that is Nathaniel Hawthorne. He said, happiness is like a butterfly. If you try to catch a butterfly with your hands, it's almost impossible. But if you sit still, sometimes a butterfly will come and light on your shoulder. Oh, beautiful. I think that kind of openness and stillness is where some of the best, richest moments in life come from. So happiness is simple, and sometimes it requires less effort rather than more to uh, experience it. 
Beautiful. And what would you say is the best way for folks to learn more about you? Would you point them to to the book Springboard or email LinkedIn? What What's your preferred means of folks finding more? I'm unplugged. All right. <laughs> that adds to my happiness, I think. <laughs> so uh, I don't have a Facebook page. I don't do LinkedIn. I'm not engaged with any of that. But I do have a website, grichardshell.com, and people can find out about my books and take the six lives exercise we talked about. That's available free on the website. And I talk a little bit about my teaching there and uh, the workshops that I do. So that's one place that they can learn more about me. And, you know, depending on their interests, I've written four books. So if they go to Amazon.com and put G. Richard Shell in, they will come up with Springboard, Launching Your Personal Search for Success, which is my most recent book. And that's the one based on the class we've been talking about. But I also have probably the third best-selling book on negotiation in the world in 16 languages. So if they have negotiation problems, I'm told that that book's pretty good. It's mm. the text for most negotiation courses in law schools and business schools all over America. And then I have another book that's on persuasion and influence it's called The Art of Woo, Winning Others Over. And that's uh, not quite as uh, renowned as my negotiation book, but it's one of my favorites. And it sort of is the surround sound to a negotiation. It's how you affect other people, how you impress them, and how you can make good arguments to persuade them to your point of view. So, you know, I think my books and the website are probably the best places to engage with me. All right, excellent. And do you have a final, perhaps a parting thought or a call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? The final thought is this. I think being an awesome at your job means doing something you do well, that you're excited by, that pays you. Mm -hmm. That's the three factors that I look for. And doing something you do well, I think people have a sense that that's like one thing. You know, you're good at sales. And so that's what you're awesome at. But I think that being really highly functional in your job is bringing the unique combination of things you do well to that work that you're doing that pays you, that you're excited by. And everybody is good at more than one thing. And they may be really, really good at one thing, but then they're pretty good at three or four other things. And when you add those, all those good things together and you find work that allows you to do that, then you're going to be world-class because there are very few people that have the combination of things that most people have. And so you're bringing your competitive advantage to the work you do. So no matter what it is, it could be computer coding and cooking, but whatever they are, when you put them in combination, that's where awesomeness comes from, in my view. Oh, beautiful. Well, Richard, this has been so fun, interesting, thought-provoking. Thank you so much, and I wish you lots of achievement as well as fulfillment uh, in your Thank course, you. in your books, and, and all that you're up to here. Well, Pete, I really appreciate the opportunity that you've created and that gave me a chance to hopefully have a few moments of positive influence, which is my metaphor for success. So I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. All right, Dave. Thanks. Big thanks to Richard for sharing those goodies and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Well, those are some powerful questions, well worth chewing on, thinking about and putting some genuine time into it. Definitely check out Richard's website and the Six Lives exercise. That in and of itself really got my wheels turning about some things and priorities and defining success. So check that one out and 
I hope that after you've had a good opportunity to do some thinking and pondering on these matters, you will join us for our next episode. We have got Michael Bungay-Stanier, and he has some just tremendously helpful coaching questions, things that you could ask folks you're working with, collaborating with, and in mere minutes, get to some interesting kinds of insights and breakthroughs and new ideas with a few specific powerful questions. You're not going to want to miss that. So punch the subscribe button if you haven't already. I hope to catch you then. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 